John 11. If you want to follow along in a Bible, I'd recommend you grab one of those paperback ones. They're about every other seat. It'll just match up a little bit more with me. We're in John chapter 11. We invest a lot of time into the Bible when we get together because we believe these are not just empty words. They are our very life. And so we're going to reflect on that together. John chapter 11 as we continue our series through hell and back. Let me pray. Well, God, uh, we want to have courage to follow where you're leading and ask for your help in that, uh, that even today in as we hear this story that you want to invite us to be a part of, that you would help us to see ourselves in it, that you would challenge us, that you would equip us, that whatever it is that we're walking through, whatever it is you're saying, this is where I need you to follow me, that you'd use this time together to really fuel that. Father, wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. So be present here among us, we pray in his name. Amen. You know, there are days that you just get bad news. There are days that you just get bad news. A text comes, you see something on Facebook, uh, you might go to the newspaper's website, or maybe if you're especially special, you might open the newspaper and see the bad news. There are just days when there are bad news. The diagnosis is back, something happened to our friend, something's happening to you. And on those days, I take comfort in the fact that a text like John 11, John 11 opens on bad news. John 11 is a bad news text, and it just begins with these simple words. It says, a man named Lazarus was sick. A man named Lazarus was sick. Lazarus, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, are close friends of Jesus. And they find themselves in a pickle. They find themselves in dire need of their friend, Jesus. Because Lazarus isn't just sick. This is not a Kyle sickness, which is where I feel like I'm dying, and really all I need is an ibuprofen and a couple of cough drops. You know, no, no, no. This is a sickness. Lazarus is on his last leg. These are his last moments. Three times in these opening verses, verses one through three, uh, the text says, Lazarus was sick. Lazarus isn't just sick. He's sick, sick, sick. Lazarus is dying, Jesus is confronted by this personal emergency in his friend. He receives word of Lazarus' sickness. And what would send almost all of us into a panic uh, leaves Jesus calm, cool, and collected. He's almost unmoved. In hearing about this emergency, the text says this in verses 4 through 7. When Jesus heard about it, about Lazarus' sickness, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, the, the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So though, jo though Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back in Judea, faced with an emergency. Faced with an emergency, Jesus just stays where he's at. Faced with an urgent need, Jesus just does his own thing. When his very close friend is in his dire straits, Jesus, who's just a few days journey away, doesn't magically Jesus teleport himself there, does not heal Lazarus from afar like he does earlier in John for a centurion son. No, he just stays where he, uh, where he is. And, and when the disciples ask Jesus, like, what's going on? Why aren't we, you know, saddling up our horses and getting over there? Jesus just says this. He says, uh, you know, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. This is in verse 9. There are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. They say, Jesus, why aren't we leaving? And Jesus kind of does this. 
light, darkness, walking. And if I'm the disciples, I'm like, okay, Jesus, like you could have just said like, no, we're not going now, right? But instead Jesus does this metaphor thing that essentially means like, hey, I'm on my own schedule. I'm gonna act when I wanna act and we'll go when we need to go. See, to Jesus, this is huge. To Jesus, there is no such thing as an emergency. To Jesus, there is no such thing as an emergency. Jesus is not gonna be rushed or worried or harried. When faced by emergency, he does not deviate from his present course because in the eyes of Jesus, there are no emergencies. Everything can and will be handled in due time. There are no emergencies because everything can and will be handled in due time. And so here we are once again reminded of the words of Gandalf the Grey. Wizards are never late, nor are they early. They arrive precisely when they mean to. And so when we get down to it, here's our problem. This is the struggle that we have, or at least I have in this text. Jesus is way too casual about death. Jesus is way too casual about death. He's not grieved. He's not panicked. That's what I want. I want Jesus, upon hearing about the sickness of his friend, to get all stirred up. And Jesus is going to get stirred up in this passage, but not over the death of his friend, or at least not in the way that we would think. No, Jesus doesn't find this disturbing. Instead, as after the death of one of his closest friends, all Jesus says is, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and I will wake him up. You know, psychologists tell us, we learned this in high school psychology, right? The first stage of grief is denial. And it feels like Jesus has planted himself firmly in stage one and is not going anywhere. Like Jesus, we're getting, I think it's time to move on to like, I don't know, anger, bargaining, I don't know, just attention, something, Jesus. But no, he's staying Sure, because for Jesus, Lazarus's death isn't that big of a deal. Because for Jesus, death isn't that big of a deal. For Jesus, death is not fatal. For Jesus, death is as simple as falling asleep in one world and waking up in the next. For Jesus, death is as simple as getting up out of this room and walking into the next room. For death, for Jesus, death is not all there is. In fact, one commentator writes, Physical death is not the important thing. Believers may die in the sense that they pass through the door we call physical death, but they will not die in the fuller sense. Death for them is but the gateway to further life and fellowship with God. Death is but the gateway to further life and fellowship with God. Now maybe it could sound like I too am in denial. If you know us, you know what we've walked through in the last year. Jesus is wrestling with death. We have grappled with death this year in more ways than one. But for Jesus, death is not ultimate. For Jesus, death is not the final word in our lives anymore. And so Jesus' teaching, which kind of comes in passing in this text, we don't want to miss. We want to engrave it in our hearts, and it's this. Death is not fatal. There are no emergencies. While death is to be grieved, it is not to be feared or avoided. Instead, we see death like all the hard things in our life, as something that clarifies the power and character of God. There's this interesting thing where Jesus, you know, he just says that because Lazarus died, the father will be glorified and so will the son. You see, Jesus says, you will see more of who I am in this occasion of death. Now, the bad things don't happen in our life so that Jesus can prove himself. He doesn't swipe at us so that he can then show himself. Instead, he uses the hard things in our life as an occasion, as an opportunity to reveal more of who he is. Death is not fatal. There are no emergencies. It is as simple as passing from one world into the next. 
And, and he says, it's not to be feared. It might be grieved. It's not to be feared. In fact, it's an occasion for you to see more of who I am. And so Jesus, teaching his disciples this, they finally get on the road. And when they arrive in Bethany, a town just outside of Jerusalem, uh, when they arrive in Bethany, he is immediately confronted by one of Lazarus' sisters. Her name is Martha. Martha and Mary appear a handful of other places in the other gospels. Martha constantly shows herself to be a woman of action and intensity and decision. And so Martha breaks with custom. Usually at this time in history, a Jewish family, when grieving, would sit in their home. And you, as the caller, would come to them where they would actually literally be sitting. You would not stand up while you were grieving, and you would be comforted by your family. Martha, no, no, no. Martha hears Jesus has crossed the line of the village, and she gets up, she goes out, and she goes to Jesus, and she says this, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever that you ask. He sa she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. You see, Martha, this is the problem for Martha. She knows enough about Jesus personally, and I guess for lack of a better word, theologically, that he could have stopped this from happening. She knows that Jesus can do something about it even now, and this is the very source of her continued faith and ongoing disappointment. You see, because she's, she knows that Jesus could have done something, but didn't. And so this is the source of her disappointment and her anger and her frustration. It just drips out of that. And yet her ongoing faith know, is in knowing that God will give Jesus whatever he asks. And, and so, and so she, he says to Martha, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. She says, Lord, if you'd only been here. I think, by the way, all of us have, Lord, if you'd only, things in our lives. Lord, if if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And, Mar and he, says to, he says to her, your brother's going to rise again. And in my mind's eye, Martha gives a giant eye roll. I mean, an eye roll of truly biblical proportions. Martha hears these words and says, I know he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. I know that he'll rise later on. You see, Martha is like us. We view resurrection as a concept or an abstract thing. That, that's saved for later. Resurrection, we can sing about it. Uh, we, we love Jesus because he brings the dead to life, but that's all like on the timeline, that's later, right? And, and, and yet, here's what we find. Martha is like us. She, ha she has this conceptual, abstract knowledge of resurrection. She has it in a category of that's for later. When it comes to resurrection, we who are people of resurrection as the people of Jesus, most of us know a lot of other things better than resurrection. Uh, we know math better than resurrection, which if you know me is saying something. We know sports stats better than we know resurrection, which if you know me is really saying something. I mean, truth be told, uh, making a really good grilled cheese is something I have a better grasp around than resurrection, because I'm just going to put that in the that's for later, isn't that nice, we can sing about it category. Resurrection isn't real to us, and it's not real to Martha, or at least not for now. She says, you know, Lord, I know it's going to happen later, but for her, that doesn't solve her emotional problem. That doesn't solve the issue that she has with Jesus, because she says, if you didn't hear, you wouldn't have died, but now I have to wait, because you're going to raise him up on the last day. But Jesus says to Martha, watch this, Let, let's look at it. It's in um, verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. 
Everyone who lives, lives in me and believes in me will never die. Will never, ever die, it says. Never, ever die. Do, and then he says, watch this. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha and Jesus have this conversation that gets a glimpse into our own lives because Martha has a head knowledge of resurrection. She has intellectually assented that resurrection is part of following Jesus that has not quite yet penetrated her heart. Some people would say the longest distance of the world is 18 inches from the brain to your heart. And for Martha, she intellectually assents. She says, I know that he'll rise on the last day. I know that you, God will give you whatever you ask, but what does he ask Martha? What does he ask Martha? He says, do you believe this? Jesus isn't concerned with what you know. Jesus is concerned with what you believe. And remember in the Gospel of John, belief is not, for the Bible tells me so, belief is this deep interpersonal trust. See, Jesus is even doing something crazy. He's saying resurrection is something you can know here and now because you know me. Resurrection isn't a thing, it's a person. Truth is not a thing, it's a person. Life is not a thing, it's a person. There are no abstract forces. Resurrection is a thing that we experience in knowing Jesus. And we'll come back to that in a little while, but because Martha in her grief kind of seems unconvinced, Mary too comes. She comes out of the house later, and the text says she falls at the feet of Jesus. This is not the only time that Mary's been at the feet of Jesus. See, there's another story in the Gospels about, you know, Jesus comes into town and Martha gets all freaked out. And so she's cooking dinner for all of these people that have come to hear, Mary, come to hear Jesus teach. And then she gets grumpy because Mary, her sister, is just kind of chilling at Jesus' feet listening. This Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus in another Gospel now falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. The funeral moves from Bethany to, to the graveside of Lazarus. And as they go there, something is happening inside of Jesus. John 11 is this really unique view into the inner life of Jesus. I mean, remember earlier on, he said, Jesus, even though Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so we know that he had deep affection for them. But that's not the last that John tells us. Look at, look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, Mary falls at his feet, is weeping. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the people wailing with her, professional mourners from Jerusalem have come in and they are weeping and wailing. White people grieve unlike anybody else in the world, okay? What do white people do? We go by ourselves and we cry silently. Jews in this time are like many people in the world. They yell and they wail and they scream and they cry, okay? And so, I mean, I've done funerals and it's been like, okay, this is a different kind of scenario, okay? We are having an interactive experience. And, 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 and so they're weeping and wailing in the background and Jesus is seeing the weeping and look at what he says in verse 33. Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing and a deep anger welled up within him. Oh boy. And he was deeply troubled where have you put him, he said. They told him, Lord, come and see. And so Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much Jesus loved Lazarus? But others said, you know, this guy healed a blind man. So couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. 
a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Significant, right? Roll the stone aside, Jesus said. And Martha, the dead man's sister, just I love this. Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell would be terrible. Uh, my stepmom, bless her, this actually reminds me of her. Uh, she, she once said to us, my sense of smell has been offended since kindergarten. She's just got a very hyperactive nose. She's a Martha. She's a Martha that would be outside the tomb and saying, you know what, that's gonna smell. He's been in there for a few days. At least can we get some like, air fresheners and some Clorox wipes and some hand sanitizer before we do this. The King James version of this says, but Lord, he stinketh. But Lord, he stinketh. That's awesome, right? This is the only, that's the only text to preach out of the KJV. The Lord, he stinketh. In the background of all of this, there's something going on inside Jesus. Yeah, Jesus weeps. But Jesus does not weep just because he's sad. Listen, why would you cry if the guy's, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know this, close your ears. Why would you cry over a guy that you're about to raise from the dead? Okay, so he's not crying over the loss of Lazarus. What's he crying about? He's crying generally at death. He's generally brokenhearted that this is just not the way the world is supposed to be. You may not experience loss, but you might go to a funeral and you might not even know that person very well. I do funerals and I don't know these people well, but I'm moved to sadness and sometimes to tears not because I know this person and man, do they have an impact on my life, but just because I think to myself, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be separated from our loved ones like this. That's not the way it's supposed to be, Jesus. And so Jesus weeps over that, but he's not wimpy weeping. Jesus is not a wimp. You imagine Jesus as a wimp, right? Like his hair is perfect and his beard is trimmed. He's wearing white with like a little sash. Listen, first of all, Jews in this time in history did not have like long hair. They did not like have coiffed little things. And you don't wear white in a desert climate when you do mostly walking okay? Because I don't know much about laundry, but I know that's going to get dirty. Okay, Jesus is not a wimp. He's not weeping because he's so sad, and now we have to get lift, pick Jesus up to do the miracle. No, he's, so not only is he sad, not only is he broken heart over death, he's getting angry. He's getting angry, and the text says what? It says, first of all, that he's deeply troubled. That deeply troubled world word is translated in the Greek and the Psalms for a waterfall and its breakers. It is water that is kind of choppy on the lake from the wind. Jesus is troubled and stirred up inside, right? But he's not just stirred up, he's mad, okay? And what this word mad means blows my mind. It's the same word used for an animal snorting. Let me tell you this. What happens when a bull sees red? What happens when a bull sees red? He snorts, he stomps his foot, and he charges. This is the kind of anger Jesus is feeling. He's looking death in the face. And though it breaks his heart that death is real, he does not just weep as if he can't do anything about it because he looks death in the face and he says, no big deal. The anger and this stirred up that Jesus is, it, it is it's the last play of the Super Bowl and the score is tied and the, and the quarterback goes to snap the ball for the last play that's gonna decide this, okay? It's that kind of worked up. I didn't play sports. Let me give you a different thing. It's the, it's the worked up I feel, I feel, I used to feel in high school before I would walk out on stage in a play for the first time. It's that amped up. 
It's that jazzed up. It's that, it's that feeling before the game. It's, it's, it, and Jesus feels this, and he doesn't just like, oh, it's too bad. No, he charges right at death. And so he says, roll the stone aside. And they roll the stone aside, and Jesus looks into this dark hole in the side of a hill, and he says these words. He says, Lazarus, come out. And there's silence for a minute. And then there's this sound inside the tomb, something shuffling and a cough. And in the shadows, there's some movement. And a hand wrapped in white cloth grabs the side as Lazarus stumbles out of the tomb, alive. Jesus looks death in the face and says, no big deal. He says, bring it on. Which, by the way, Jesus looks at your enemies and he says, bring it on. Jesus does not look at what's troubling you and go, oh, let me cry with you about that because I don't know what to do either. Oh, no, no. Jesus gets angry and he looks at it in the face and he says, come on. Jesus conquers death in this moment. And though death thinks it still gets to laugh a little bit in just a few weeks, a few days really from this moment in the text, Jesus kills death forever. Now, what's interesting about John 11 is that it does not move to the celebration of those who watch this miracle. They do not celebrate it. It doesn't move from the celebrating of those who watch this happen. It moves to the plotting of those who would kill Jesus. Look at uh, verse 45. It says, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus because they saw this happen. Yay! And there was much rejoicing. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, and the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They said. This man certainly does perform many miraculous signs, but if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him, and then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Let me tell you why Jesus dies. He dies for our sin, all these really beautiful truths that are true and deep to us. Jesus dies on the wheel, wheel of politics. Jesus dies at the hand of an oppressive government, and Jesus dies at the hand of a religious system that is interested in getting wealthy off the backs of those who it serves as opposed to caring for them. You see, here's what happened. In, in, at Jesus' day, Rome rules the world. Every known corner of the world is basically run by Rome. It's a diverse, massive empire. How do you rule people in Britain and France and, and, and Italy and Greece and Turkey and North Africa. How do you rule all of these people? They, they all have different gods and different beliefs. Well, here's how you do it. You let everybody worship whatever god they want. Polytheistic society, that's great. And all you say is, can we just add one extra god to your worship routines? What we need you to do is worship whatever Greek god you worship, but you just also need to come to the temple of the emperor and you need to burn incense in front of his image. Everybody's great with that because... They don't mind an extra God and interceding for them might mean a better harvest that year. It might mean they actually get what they need this year, except for one little particular people in a little corner of the world called Palestine, who at the very core of their faith say, hero Israel, the Lord is one. We have one true God, Israel says. And so they say, we're not worshiping no emperor. And so for the 400 years in between the close of the Old Testament and the New, it is bloody battle after bloody battle after bloody battle between Jewish, the, Jew, the Jews of that, in that time and the Romans. And so what happens by the time we get to Jesus' day is we've forged a fragile peace where the Romans will turn a blind eye to the fact that very few Jews worship the emperor as long as 
the Jews make sure there's no more trouble in Palestine. You make sure your people don't rise up anymore, Jews, and we'll just not worry about this too much. You pay your taxes, you just, you be quiet. And so now, but here's this Jesus who performs these miracles, who have crowds following after him, and what are they calling him? They are calling him Lord. In a land where there are temples that say Caesar is Lord. And there is no Lord but Caesar. And so the Jews know that if this continues to get worse, there will be an uprising because Jesus has also said that he's going to overturn the temple sacrifices that the Jews are going to use. It's going to be chaos. The Romans are going to see the chaos and Rome does not like chaos. They're going to come in and they're going to raise it to the ground. They're going to flatten these people. And so Jesus is killed on the wheels of politics. He is, next week we will see, brought before the Jewish council in John 18 and they can't get a thing to stick on him. They can't get an accusation to stick. So they take him to the Romans and they say, hey, he's calling Jesus his Lord. Like, hey, you take care of him. Pontius Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. And so they kill him by breaking their own law to keep a peace that was bad at, that was not that great at best and terrible at worst. Jesus dies for that reason. John moves into that. But what's interesting about the Bible, what's interesting about John 11 is it's not telling us like, here's how to live now. If you were here for us in our James series, it was right there on the top, right? Don't talk like this, talk like this. Check, got that, Jesus. I have this piece of, in my, the beginning of my Bible and it says the life application topic indexed. So when I'm struggling in my attitude, I just turn to attitude and I read these verses. Not a lot on crucifixion. Not a lot on death. Here's the problem. Scripture is not an encyclopedia for your personal problems. It's not a pharmacy. It is a, it is a story in which we are invited to live. And as we embed that story into our hearts, we learn how to respond. It's kind of like improv. We learn the script, and then we act out on the script. And, and, and here's the thing. Jesus says that he wants us to understand life and resurrection. He says... I am the resurrection and the life, and in knowing me, you can have resurrection power in your everyday life. Resurrection power every day. Resurrection power every day. What the heck does that mean? I mean, Paul says that resurrection power is available to us through the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us. And so we tap into that power and now live this new kind of life. Paul says that we should be thinking of ourselves as dead to the power of sin and alive through Christ Jesus, what is resurrection power in our everyday lives? You know, when Jesus walks out of the tomb at the end of the Gospel of John, spoiler alert, he lives. Uh, When Jesus walks out, do you know what his first words are? His first words are, do not be afraid. To live with resurrection power is to live without fear. To live with resurrection power is to live without fear. And let me tell you why this is good news, because all of the sin in our lives, all of our struggles, all of those ways that we fall short are always connected to fear. You know, we end up in a relationship we shouldn't be in and we give ourselves away sexually to somebody because we're just afraid that we're gonna be alone. We overwork because we're afraid that we're gonna lose our job. We need that job security. We overspend because we're afraid that we might not have enough money to enjoy enjoy, or we're not generous because we're afraid that there won't be enough for us. We're lazy because we're afraid that we might not get enough rest. We gossip and slander other people because we're, we, we want everybody distracted. If they know about this person's junk, maybe they won't ever find out about mine. 
We drink too much because we're afraid to face life without feeling numb. We fight on Facebook about politics and social issues because we're afraid that that minority opinion that I'm defending, maybe somebody thinks my opinions aren't worthwhile either. We're afraid that maybe the way they're treating that group is the way that I could be treated. We're afraid that I don't know if I'll have something that defines my life if I don't fight for this issue. We run after pornography because we're afraid of real intimacy. We run after racism because we're afraid of who's different. So much of our sin is connected to fear, but the gospel says that fear is connected to death. See, I'm afraid I'm gonna die, so I've gotta get it in now. I've gotta get the money in, I've gotta get the experiences in. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may what? Die. And so we party and, we, and we, cha- we run away from our fear because we're ultimately afraid of death because death is gonna cut this party short. So I've gotta get, be successful and get the money and sleep with all the people and have all of these experiences. And yet what Jesus says is death isn't real. That what we experience now as the people of Jesus is the dress rehearsal for how we will spend eternity. And so we don't need to be afraid of anything anymore. We don't need to be afraid of death. And if we're not afraid of death, I don't need to be afraid of making sure I have enough or gossiping about that person or getting into the right relationship because, you know, ultimately, I'm going to have everything I need. If death is not real, I am set free to pursue the pleasures of God, not the off-brand pleasures of this world, which is just like this. I don't like the bagged Fruit Loops on the bottom of the shelf at the grocery store. No, dad, they aren't all made in the same place and all taste the same. No, and they just stick different stickers on. My dad has said this for years. No, the Fruit Loops on the bottom of the thing taste different than the Fruit Loops of real. Can I get a witness? You know what I'm saying? It's just different, right? Listen, we don't have to eat off-brand Fruit Loops. We don't have to eat off-brand Fruit Loops. We can be set free to have the name brand. Thank you, Jesus, because we don't need to be afraid anymore. And it means that if we have nothing to fear, we lay our lives down as servants of others. It means that we give like we've never given before. We serve like we've never served before. We get out of our comfort zone like we've never been out of it before. We reorder our time. We reorder our money. Transformed people who are not afraid of death, people have been transformed out of this, have totally reordered priorities. And so right now you have friends that cannot grasp that you're in church. They can't grasp this, that you come early to church to like move stuff around, stay after to move it around again, uh, and, and tell people about Jesus. They can't grasp that Joey and Julia went to Iraq to serve refugees. Why would you do that? Aren't they out to get us? When Jesus conquers our fear of death, he conquers all of our fear. And when that happens, I am set free. And we say, just because this, this is a world that I'm just passing through, man, I'm going to make the most of it now because I get to enjoy forever later. And so the question becomes, how do we receive resurrection power? I want to close with this. How do I receive resurrection power? How do I get that? How do I be fearless? Here's the thing about Lazarus. You know, we wonder, why didn't Jesus rush over there? Why didn't Jesus, as soon as he heard, magically Jesus teleport himself, boom, fix Lazarus, come back, do whatever he was doing. Tell you why, Jesus can't raise Lazarus from the dead until Lazarus is dead. Jesus can't raise Lazarus from the dead until Lazarus is dead. You can't receive resurrection power without a death first. There is no Easter without Good Friday. 
If you don't have resurrection power in your life, if you are scared as all get out, my question to you is, have you died yet? Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, they must take up their cross daily and deny themselves and come after me. To follow Jesus is a death to yourself. There's really only one kind of death that's real, and it's when you nail your desires and intentions on the cross of Jesus and take up his life. If, we wanna be, if you want to live with resurrection power, have you died yet? Here's how you die. Take second place always. Take second place always. If we want to be a church filled with resurrection power, we got to die. Hear me on this. We got to die. We got to be a dead church to be a live one. And so we might start this and say, I really like that song a lot. I really like the way that we do this, 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 and this, and this. And all of a sudden, the resurrection power goes away. Because what if we had to change everything about what we do to reach the next person? Would we do that or not? Plenty of churches in our community would say no. Are we going to be the people that are going to say yes to that? If we want to be a church of resurrection power, we've got to be dead. We've got to be dead in order to be alive. And that might mean, by the way, you know, Good Friday comes then Easter, on Friday night, then Easter comes on Saturday. You've got about a couple of days in the ground. It means that we might have a very long Good Friday before we experience Jesus in our lives. Are you dead yet? Have we died as ourselves? To, I mean, that's our primary mission as stakeholders in this community is to be sure that we're dead. Now, here's the thing. Some of you don't care about resurrection power, don't care about it in your life, you don't care about it in your church because you're like, Kyle, let me tell you who I am in John 11. I am the person at the side of the grave. I am, the water isn't here, it's up to here. I'm on my last leg, I'm burnt out, I'm spent, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Let me put it differently. When you are at your last, when you are standing in the graveyard of your hopes and dreams and everything about your life seems dead, remember that Jesus does his best work in cemeteries. Jesus does his best work in cemeteries. And into the dry bones of your life, God's breath will blow and raise you to something brand new. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he asks this question. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Just want you to take a second and kind of examine your heart. Scripture says, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you just, where are those parts that aren't dead yet? Where are those parts that aren't dead yet? Where are those parts that you still resist? Would you pray, Lord, to help, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, as we come to this meal, we need your help to crucify once again that which is not of you. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen.